0: Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. If you're not angry, you're either a stone, or you're too sick to be angry. <laughs>
1: Brains than you have. No that man. Anybody can have a brain. You're a
0: very
1: bad man. I'm a very good man.
0: Just a very bad wizard. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, you play with it at night in bed. You're not allowed to fiddle with it at work. And only special people are allowed to touch it. What is it?
2: I know this is supposed to be one of those riddles where you think it's about a penis, but all of those things are so patently false about my own penis that uh, I have to say my iPhone.
0: <laughs> You're allowed to fiddle with your penis at work?
2: I don't see anyone stopping me. I mean, what is the answer?
0: Uh, it's it's kind of stupid. A smartphone.
2: Yeah, see, my iPhone. I knew that. I knew that's where that was going.
0: Yeah. Um, In the second segment, Molly Crockett is joining us to talk about outrage in the digital age and an article that she wrote for um, Nature, or it was a commentary for Nature Human Behavior. And um, that's coming up in the second segment. We'll also finally get to that discussion we had a while back about that study the unholy what was it the nina the unholy
2: marriage of evolutionary psychology and trolleyology yes exactly
0: the paper is called we don't know know. listen to our discussion (laughs) we had three weeks ago or whatever more something something mate
2: preference something something moral
0: (laughs) and then after that we'll be back with molly crockett
2: so, this paper is pulling the lever sexy deontology as a downstream cue to long term mate quality. Uh, Tamler, you um, texted me this. You, lo- you loved this paper.
0: I, I think so. This is a paper published in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships. I, I think that this paper is a further sign of the decay. And uh, and and just I don't know. Like if I was a social psychologist and I saw this paper, I would think, "Wow, maybe I need to, you know, reexamine what it is that I do and why." This okay, seems so, to have all the like problems of all the different studies, like that we've talked about, wrapped up into one. Uh, okay. Well, so, I'm
2: gonna I'm gonna do my best to to defend it because I think that sure
0: you're a professionally. That- like, like your whole profession relies on you being able to defend
2: uh, no, no, I mean, I think that there's reasons to laugh at at this, but but I actually think it's not nearly as bad as one might think from the you know there, it does have this flavor of like take a little from column A and take a little from column B, which is sort of a hallmark of of you know low effort uh hypotheses, which is like the effects of A on B or something like that, where you just take two things that have been studied to death, so in this case mate preference and trolleyology.
0: But so. so when i say it has all these all the problems. So one of those problems is in the second study that they present they equate utilitarianism being a utilitarian with pushing a fat person off a bridge <laughs> in the in the footbridge dilemma and I, we've talked about this but that is about as bad a measure I, like even masturbating into a chicken, I think, is a better measure of <laughs> of ut- what <laughs> of utilitarianism.
2: <That's> <laughs> for the greater, for the greater good. Th- um. They, so, so yeah, but but to their credit, study one doesn't use that, right? And so,
0: so, so well, let's just report the results okay. and then we'll talk about because I, I actually have problems with with study one too. But 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 okay. go for it.
2: Okay. So the, so the, the question that they're trying to answer here is whether, you know, this is from the tradition, great evolutionary psych tradition where, um, there are proposed, it's proposed that people have two different mating strategies, um, Long-term mating strategies and short-term mating strategies. And when you're looking for a long-term partner, what you're looking for is somebody who's going to be invested in rearing your offspring, going to support, uh, going to support you. This is you're looking for a different set of traits like stability and and um, fidelity and competence in, in uh, whatever providing. Um, whereas when you're looking for a short-term mate. You care little about those things. What you look for are other cues, like especially presumably cues to just straight up genetic fitness. So there is a large body of research that purports to show is very controversial, but that purports to show that in, under some conditions women seek out men who are just like sort of good-looking, strong-jawed, testosterone-heavy, short-term partners. And the idea here is, if they get pregnant with them, then they might not be parental investors, but they will definitely give them uh, high-quality genetic offspring. And under some conditions, they'll actually seek out like the nerdy, stable accountant who's guaranteed to never cheat on them and stay with them until you know until they die. So that's the or that's at least the assumption. until
0: their children reach adult reproductive <laughs> <Exactly>. age themselves.
2: <laughs> Exactly. So yeah. that's in a nutshell that and I, of course there's tons of criticism about this, whatever, but that's just what it is. So what they did was they were uh, looking to see whether or not moral judgments of, of the sort that's studied in trolleyology, as you so harshly uh, put it, Um whether these can serve as cues. And so the idea here is that the deontologist, the person who is unwilling or is committed to doing things like not harming, that what you're communicating is a set of cues like trustworthiness and fidelity. You're, you're not going to just hop on the next thing that is going to yield the best consequences, you're actually going to be true to your commitments in a way that deontology, to be fair, I think deontology really would require you to do. You honor your promises, you keep your vows. Like even if there is some uh, option that would maximize your personal utility, you are, you are a person of your word. So they had, they described to women in study one, they described a man who was either a, uh, A utilitarian or a deontologist? And in study one, they only asked women to uh, report whether they would like to have short term mating experience or a long term mating experience with them.
0: Like, what about no mating experience?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, you could answer zero on either of them. And the way that they uh, communicated whether or not this person was a, a deontologist or a consequentialist or utilitarian is they just gave. So the Deontologist's statement was derived from a description of Immanuel Kant's moral philosophy emphasizing social rule adherence, i.e. the ends do not justify the means. And the utilitarian statement was framed around Jeremy Bentham's philosophy, emphasizing optimum well-being for the most amount of people. These vignettes described behavioral repertoires, not confining morality to one decision or implicating one target as harmful in chronic behavioral patterns. So they did some some decent attempt at describing them as just generally well.
0: well so let's they they did to their credit, they give in their appendix they give the descriptions, and I I, I just want to read it because I, I this is when I say that I find this. It's not even this particular study as much as, like, is this what you guys do? In the same way that people say that about philosophers when, you know, they're fussing about counterexamples. So here's the the deontological target. Imagine this man's name is Jeff. Importantly, Jeff has a unique moral perspective on life and makes decisions in a manner that reflects his perspective. When it comes to doing the right thing, Jeff believes in strict adherence to moral rules. He Jeff believes that rules were made for a reason— and that we as a society should follow them. He believes that we must focus on the rightness or wrongness of actions, not on the consequences of those actions. Because of this, Jeff does not believe people should break moral rules for any reason, even if some potential good can occur or potential harm can be avoided by breaking those rules. And, And it continues in that vein. And now you're asking women, do you want to mate with this person in the short term? or in the long term like what kind, like it's 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 such a ridiculous question first of all he's this guy sounds like a nightmare like strict he sounds like some sort of like puritan from the 1600s and you have no sense of like what kind of person is he is he like funny is he handsome is he is he, 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 say, <laughs> is he like you well
2: they i mean so they they showed that like they're equivalently likable um Right. So they do that. And then then I I don't I mean, like, he doesn't strike me. I think you're just betraying your hatred toward communism. He strikes me as a trustworthy person. That's to me. The problem is just simply that they've told me, hey, here's a trustworthy person. Would you trust them to be in a relationship? And like, it seems like, yeah, of course.
0: So the utilitarian target and this is the one that people did not want to mate with long term although I just (laughs) question this whole idea uh, Steve has a unique moral perspective on life and makes decisions in a manner that that reflects his perspective when it comes to doing the quote right thing Steve believes that moral behavior is defined by the outcomes it has for those affected Steve believes that the best course of action is trying to get the best outcomes for the most people even if such behavior might ultimately violate long-standing moral rules. He thinks that moral rules should be broken if they fail to benefit the most people. To Steve, the consequences of actions justify the means of those actions. The right thing to do is whatever creates the most happiness for the most people, even if it means typical moral rules are broken, is Steve's central philosophy. So every part of that description just talks about breaking moral rules, right? Right. And I again, in the same way of like the trolley thing, even though this isn't as bad a measure of utilitarianism as the trolley thing, that really isn't the thing that utilitarians go around doing. They don't – and I'm <laughs> not a utilitarian. I scored lower than you did, right? But I have yeah. to defend them here. They're not going around looking for moral rules to break constantly to to get the – like usually right. they they're just doing things that are – totally fine right. according to moral rules but are benefit the the the, the most amount of people
2: i mean so it, it, what you could say here is and this is what i was going to ask you i mean the the description of the deontologist at least seems to adhere to what it you know it, yes. it might sound disagreeable but it adheres to what a deontologist would believe right the the description of the utilitarian is incomplete that is utilitarians if they're being honest, they will bite the bullet and answer in a particular way about about you know throwing the fat guy onto the trolley switch or whatever. But but you're right that this is an un, this is under describing the utilitarian and not capturing it's the real traits. Right, it's 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 misleading. So the utilitarian might actually endorse all of those things that it said endorse. But but you would want something like what Guy Cahan and Jim Everett did in this in the utilitarian uh, quiz that we just took. You would want something that says. And this person believes that like the money that he used to spend uh, every month on sneakers, he has now decided to donate to, to uh, charity. And if you inserted or, that, or I that this person
0: gives 30 percent of his income to charity. How <laughs> yeah. about that? Because he yeah. thinks that will do the most good.
2: And there the question is, so there would it change? Yeah, I, I'm on board with you because uh, uh, of the emphasis on violating rules is just begging you to say like, well, he's going to violate his vows right the, the minute something <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. it
0: makes it sound like they're just looking for sacrificial dilemmas constantly yeah. <laughs> uh they're just like they, they get out of their house like looking it's to break like, a rule they push. have a
2: little app that shows them when like <laughs> fat people are like precariously close to trolleys yeah um so they can run over and just give them a little push <laughs> Um, so okay, so they measured <laughs> they measured mating desirability on a nine point scale, so uh, so not at all desirable to very desirable, and asked them, "A short term partner is somebody who you would desire for c- casual dating or a one night stand. Overall, how desirable would you find this person as a short term partner?" And then the, and then and then also a long term question, um, and so at the very least you can p- compare deontologists within the deontology condition. You can compare them using the long-term mating and the short-term mating strategy. Um, and so, uh, what the results were, was, um, hold on, where are the results here? Uh, that the utilitarian deontological target were equally desirable, um, utilitarians, so overall, um, utilitarians didn't differ in their long-term versus short-term desirability deontologists were more desirable as long-term mating partners than as short-term mating partners so um, so the mean is 6 compared to 3 so if you're a de- if you express deontology you're you say that you're a 6 um, Indesirability for long-term mating or three and short-term mating,
0: right? Which makes sense because again, the guy does not sound like oh, this would be a, like a fun guy to go have a few drinks with. You He's going to
2: be texting <laughs> you a little too much, yeah. And then and then they asked about infidelity, and and sure enough, it's just the participants found utilitarian targets as more prone to infidelity. Of course, they've just told them all <laughs> sorts of rules that they would routinely break for the sake of the greater good. Right. So, uh,
0: and um, I like the idea that. You know, often it is for the greater good to cheat on your <laughs> <laughs> cheat on your spouse. Yeah. You know. It's like
2: all these dilemmas are about torturing people to yeah. like save the bomb from going off. But what if you have to fuck someone?
0: Yeah. You know? Exactly. That's what spies do. They fuck people. Yeah. And even if it's you're not a spy, just like it would add a little happiness, you know. <laughs> like you would be a little happier, the person would be a little happier, and no one's the wiser. So uh. <laughs> utilitarianism. So then
2: the study too, they do the same thing. But instead of giving these descriptions, they actually use the trolley problem um, and they give it for both men and women. And if I recall correctly, it's the same thing. That suffers from more problems, though, as you say. It's not a good measure of consequent of, of utilitarianism. It's
0: just not. I um, just think people should stop measuring whether people are utilitarians or deontologists. But yeah, yeah, people yeah. aren't those things. You know, there's some, there's some sort of blend and the blend mixes and, you know, there's a spectrum. Peter Singer's I mean, on I'm, one end. I don't even know who's on the other end. Yeah, like, who's I, I don't, real. <laughs> you know like Kant. i mean i don't
2: mind saying that 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 philosophers might have a very you know they can be classified um at least ethical philosophers might be classified but normal human beings like if what you care about is lay moral cognition there is no reason to believe that we don't have both of these i mean that's why we did the chipped tyrone studies to begin with like you can just easily see it switch and what does it mean that you easily see it switch well it doesn't To me, it means that both of these views of the world are easily available to us. And depending on the circumstance, we're going to pull out one set of reasons or another. Like talk to an American about Hiroshima and they're going to say the ends justify the means. You know, talk to them uh, at another time about Americans getting tortured for information. They're going to say that you should never do that. Right. Like it's not they're not lying. They're not embarrassed at their inconsistency they they're just simply pulling out reasons that will suit whatever problem you put in front of them.
0: And here's why I find this paper I don't mean to be too hard on it cuz I do think it's this is just a genre right now. I don't think this paper tells us anything about whether people are more attracted to utilitarians or deontologists as, you know, or people who you know, lean one way or the other. Cause again, nobody is all one way. I, I, I think these things are so much m- more complex than that. And this, this way of simplifying rather than shedding any light at all, I think is, is distorting. I'm like, right. you know, I, and I'm going to put,
2: I'll, I'll put in a little plug for the, the, a paper that they cite um, quite a bit in here, which is a paper with Jim Everett and Molly Crockett and I, and uh, what we did. And there, I think, uh, I hope at least that it was um, a more nuanced conclusion. We actually had people uh, uh, read whether or not somebody responded in the utilitarian fashion to sacrificial moral dilemmas. And then we asked people um, whether or not they'd be willing to – we put them in a trust game where they could exchange money in the hopes of getting it back. And so it – It turns out that people trust the the utilitarian respondents less than the deontological respondents. But I think it's important to note we're not making here any assumptions about the underlying structure of that moral judgment. It's just the person who just told you that they would throw a fat guy to their death, people take that as as less trustworthy. And I think importantly in that paper what we found was that if the person said the utilitarian option but they expressed conflict – so they said like, you know, this would be a really tough decision. I actually think that you shouldn't kill an innocent person, but in this case, it's hard. So I think I might actually say that it is, is, it is right to push them. Then the effect went away completely. So what they were reading is not their underlying moral. People aren't going around wondering what the underlying moral structure of people's theories is. Right. It's they're reading cues. They're and reading. if you give me a cue that someone's a dick, I think they're a right. Dick. Exactly. Right? And these sacrificial moral dilemmas make people sound like dicks unless you give them the opportunity to express what they actually are saying. Right?
0: And just to clarify, when you say the utilitarian option, you don't mean that person is a utilitarian. You no, mean not at all. Just like, that that that's it, the label for that. Exactly. Option. Yeah.
2: The response that was designed to be, yeah. you know, philosophers designed these to, for a very specific specific reason to yeah. tease apart where these two theories might come
0: from. No, that, I actually, I know, I mean, you've talked about that study before. I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast, but I know know the study you're talking about. And I think that's actually interesting, just, if you just take those words out of it, you know, those moral theories out of it and just say, like, you know, based on what you answer to these questions— How is that going to affect how willing you are to engage in some sort of cooperative enterprise with this person um, is an interesting question. That's a legitimate question. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And what what we've argued like now, you know, like for uh, across a few papers is that what we're doing when we're evaluating people is we're trying to find any cue that will tell us that. Like what kind of character do you have? if the If the cue comes from seeming calloused in your ability to sacrifice somebody, it really doesn't matter that you tell me that it's five people that were saved or eight people or twelve people. What matters is in that scenario, you've just told me that I'm willing to push somebody to their death, right? right. So um, so, uh, so we're just looking for any cue. And sometimes the experimenter only gives you one fucking cue. And what are you supposed to do with that? Like they just told me that they would be willing to push a fat guy to their death. What am I supposed to do with that?
0: Here's, here's a bone to the evolutionary psychologist. We have evolved to be social creatures that are dependent on other people in all of our interactions for survival, for reproduction, for happiness, for well-being, for health. And so it's really important to be able to read you know, uh, right, exactly. another person's character and how likely they are either to screw you over or to cooperate with you, or to help you. It it, it almost it's so confining that some elements of moral psychology has has divided the world into utilitarians <laughs> and, and deontologists because there's so much more interesting stuff that you could do by you know, just, uh, abandoning that framework and going more specific and fine grained about what it is that we're looking for.
2: Absolutely. When you, when you were saying in the earlier segment about, about what about virtue theory, like that's actually like one of the things like uh, Eric Ullman, um, and I, and, and David Tannenbaum have written, have written about this, so, like I actually think that that's a much more plausible descriptive view of what we're doing. Like we're just trying to figure out who's good and who's bad. And what good and bad means is super contextual. Like, what's good in one culture is rude in another culture, and we're just looking for these cues to figure out, like, should I trust this person? Should you know? Should I date this person? Should I get into a business with this person? Morality kind of comes out of those motivations. It's not something that's just built into you as like a, either rule bound or you, you know consequence bound or whatever.
0: you your gene for utilitarian. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did I ever tell you, by the way, about those studies that um, if you just ask people, like a true utilitarian would be, uh, you can use sacrificial moral dilemmas to measure a true utilitarian. And what you ought to expect is that if you are killing a person to save three people, you'd be slightly less likely to endorse that than it, than to kill ten people, than to, to I mean, than to save ten people, than to save one hundred people, right? So a true utilitarian would be sensitive to that. So what you can do is you can vary that and you can show that some people are sensitive to that. But for these people who have psychopathic traits, it's just that they're okay with shoving someone to their death. So all you need to do is ask them. If you ask in a separate set of studies, would you be okay pushing someone uh, over a footbridge to their death? They'll be slightly more likely to say yes. So you, you can tease apart the part that is about the callousness that allows them to push someone and the part that is their sensitivity to number yeah it's such a fucking dumb way of measuring this
0: and uh, and it just gets entrenched you know this is a and then it's like once this is your paradigm you know you can either try to create a new paradigm that's virtually impossible or you can like leave the the field you know yeah you don't have a choice really you
2: know it's it's true, and what I remember at one point realizing when like m- the moral psychology had like become popular, and I I knew the moment where it had it had kind of jumped the shark, um, or at least become entrenched when I started seeing papers, or and getting emails from people saying like, hey, I want to measure the effects of like X on moral judgment. What uh, give me some measures of moral judgment? And people just started inserting the John Height fuck. Your chicken right. scenarios as like just their measure of morality, completely missing even John Height's nuance about right. like what these examples <laughs> were trying to show. Right? They just took it as, "Hey, give me your measure of morality," as if as if there was anything that was like you know.
0: And then they'll just like to justify that 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 that's the the right measure. They'll just go height two thousand one exactly <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> exactly it's it's super frustrating, all the nuance gets lost and it gets entrenched, and then everybody shits on it and it gets out of popularity and then like something else comes along it's like, I guess that's how all
0: fields work, yeah,
2: except for physics, they make progress
0: there. <laughs> right they're actually doing something worthwhile uh, that was our discussion. Hope you enjoyed it, and we will be back with Molly Crockett. Just a note to our listeners. This is the last time. Actually, until the end of that segment and I guess our promo where my voice will be bearable to listen to. I was <laughs> really sick during the Molly Crockett, the initial right. Molly Crockett interview. So,
2: And my voice is just shitty as always. But stick around to the end because we ended up actually talking to Molly a few days later. There's an addendum.
0: Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. I guess I'll do support because um, after this, my voice is just going to be so, <laughs> so horrible. I was just coming off a, like, two-week-long sickness. Anyway, um, we'd like to thank all of the people who listen and get in touch with us, who tweet us. Um, you can tweet us at Tamler, at P's at Very Bad Wizards. Who send us emails? VeryBadWizards at gmail.com, Instagram at VeryBadWizards, I guess. Um, We have a Facebook page where there is always lively discussion of each episode. We have a subreddit where there is a lot of different discussions going on. We're so appreciative of the community that seems to be growing around this show. And we love getting your emails. We love hearing what you think about the episodes. Please know how much we appreciate it. And we also really appreciate the people who support us on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash verybadwizards and support us each for each episode. And there's going to be more and more bonus content coming up based on the level that you support us at. We do try to thank you in more tangible ways as you have (laughs) thanked us in more tangible ways. Uh, You can also do one-time donations with PayPal. Those mean a lot to us too. And um, go to Amazon. and, And this is at no extra cost to you except the time that it takes to go to our support page, click on the Amazon link, And then shop as you normally would on Amazon.com.
2: Thank you, guys. I I want to really quickly say every time we do this, I always think to myself, you know, we say a lot of the same stuff. Uh, There's a way in which we could save ourselves time and insert a standard support slash thank you. uh, but. But that would that would remove our our uh, joy of thanking you personally each time. So if it's repetitive, I apologize. But it's I think it's kind of important to us that we say it fresh every single time. To this, yeah, you know, we're, we're we've never even proposed. We've never, never. It never even I've came never, up.
0: Yeah. Like, I mean, the thought occurred to me, but like I never thought of like saying we should should we do this or whatever. Nah. It's, yeah, you know, never. Yeah. It would feel fake. It would feel fake. Um, so yes, thank you to. Thanks to all of you, and you are um, quite literally the thing that keeps us going. Uh, Now we're ready to
2: talk to our guest of the day, the wonderful, brilliant, charming, smart, prolific professor of psychology at Yale University, Molly Crockett, who was a guest way back when uh, took the time to talk to us, what, five years ago? I think it was
1: five years ago.
2: Yeah, because I, I remember I was in Toronto when, when nobody knew who we were. <laughs> um, and, uh, and everything ne- has changed because you are now wor- world-famous, Molly. So <laughs> I'm you need not no sure about that.
0: <laughs> um, and we're household names. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's right. Not in a good way. Um, it's just been a while. We wanted to have you back to talk about all the work you've been doing. Um, especially, especially Tamler's favorite topic... Um, which will will discuss um, specifically in, in the context of a paper you wrote recently on moral outrage in the digital age. Not so. So, thank you for for joining us again.
1: Molly. It is my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
2: Uh, you know, why I love this paper because it's three pages. <laughs> oh man, it's
1: way it's... harder to write a short paper than a long paper. I, and there's
0: a lot to talk about in these three pages too. There I mean, is. That's, a perf- that's, right. that's perfect. That's what it's you want. Perfect, it's,
2: exact, <laughs> it's the exact kind of paper to talk about. I actually find it hard to write long papers. I don't have. I'm a man of few words. <laughs> and large on fonts Episode one thirty-four. <laughs> large fonts. Really small margins. So can um, you
0: just describe the the paper? Just just give a brief summary of what you're doing in this in the in the paper.
1: Sure. So um, the paper sort of arose as a research as personal therapy process. <laughs> Over the past year and a half, I guess, I found myself spending perhaps unhealthy amounts of time on social media and feeling outraged about various things in the world. And because I've spent many years studying the nature of moralistic punishment, I decided to try and put at least some of the energy that I was devoting to this topic to scholarly use. And so the paper is really a theoretical uh, approach to understanding how new technologies like social media might be changing the way we experience and express outrage and what are the consequences for society and for ourselves and How should we be thinking about and studying this question?
2: So when you say you were spending too much time, were you yourself ever the target of moral outrage or was this just you sort of fueling your own more flexing your own moral muscles? Too frequently, I don't. And if so, yeah. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, I don't think I was a target of outrage. I think I would probably remember if I was. So I've, I've yeah. thankfully managed to escape that uh, so far. Hopefully, um, it was more me reading things in the news that made me feel outraged, and and I felt compare, compelled to share those on social media. And then I got a lot of positive feedback and engagement on those posts, and that was compelling. And, and I think that I developed a a habit of spending too much time in that cycle. And I, I noticed it because I've, I've studied habits and, uh, I've studied outrage and, and I, I wanted to try and apply my training to understanding what was going on in my own experience and, and talking to other people. I, I found, that this resonated with. When
0: you were in that sort of cycle that you describe, how aware of your own motives and your own sort of, you know, did you introspect about why you were sharing certain um, articles or certain, you know, or why you were expressing outrage at, at certain things? Did you question your motives in doing it at the time or was it only in retrospect that you were kind of trying to understand what it is that was going on?
1: Not, not in the moment, only after the fact, when I had a couple of mornings where three hours disappeared and <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God, how did this happen?
2: So this is just an issue of productivity for you.
1: Oh my God. I, like this was a mindless behavior. It was not an intentional behavior. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I personally prefer in my interactions with other people to be intentional and... To, to be behaving in a way where I'm, I'm thinking about the consequences of, of my actions. And, um, and I, I was caught in, in a habit.
0: And, and you're not the only one who's caught in a habit, <laughs> I think it's safe to say. One can infer, which is the point you make, that,
2: that what's going on is more than just moral outrage. At least the trigger is more complex than any particular act. It's, it's signaling a team. Yeah, I think
1: right. I think that the particular combination of outrage plus groups, plus social media is is what is is particularly uh, a concern. Yeah. Sorry, uh, it's... it's
2: a certain time. It's
0: a certain time. <laughs> Are you getting censored by SJWs?
1: Yeah, I, could, I forgot about uh, this like at five o'clock. It's going to go on for like two minutes.
0: Yeah.
2: So, so yeah, so like that combination um, that you're talking about um, is is what makes it pernicious. But okay, here's one broad question. Like one possibility is that moral outrage is changing in some qualitative way. That is, the things that we, um, the the way that we feel the emotions or the triggers are changing or this is, and I don't know really how to make this distinction hold, but it's just all this is doing is making all of the outrage knowable to people in a way that wasn't before. Just like I can say, I like chocolate ice cream on Twitter and now whatever thousands of people know I like chocolate ice cream. There is nothing in the process of me acquiring the taste for chocolate ice cream and liking it and telling people that it has changed. It's only the audience size Mm -hmm. and then the response that I get. The other thing is something that you are hinting at, which is that moral outrage is because people feed off of it. It's actually – or people get rewarded for it. They're actually expressing it more and more and feeling it perhaps for or expressing it for even more trivial things than they would have before.
1: Yeah. And and one thing I want to really emphasize and we will probably emphasize at several points during this conversation is that my goal in writing this was identifying a set of questions to be answered as opposed to offering any definitive answers. Because I think there's a whole lot that we don't know about what's going on when you take a moral emotion that evolved in a particular context and then put it in a totally different context. And your question is really uh, gets gets to the heart of the really interesting theoretical problems which is is outrage experienced in in an online setting like is the emotion itself different? I mean, I think that the most sort of parsimonious prediction is that it's not different. It's just, it's just being triggered more. But then I think it's important to ask about the dynamics over time because right. there's research that points in both ways. There's research on sort of rumination and uh, expressing anger and aggression leading to, to more... Anger and aggression expression in the future, but then there's also ideas around burnout and uh, and sort of uh, habituating to these stimuli. So I mean, there's a lot we don't know about what's happening to the emotion itself.
2: Right, because one possibility is that it it could be like what some emotion researchers call just an as as if sort of emotion, sort of like like fear. Experienced in a horror film Mm -hmm. is fear-ish. It's right has some of the qualities of fear, but nobody's really having like you know the HPA
0: axis overreacting and like PTSD. Mm. I mean, presumably not. Yeah. I mean, I think that people who still express outrage over a Trump tweets you know like i can't believe that they are still actually feeling the full-fledged the full outrage force over it. it's been 2 years that he's been doing this and that people have been paying attention to it it's i don't know it just seems like there is something else that's going on when people reliably express outrage at those things that i can't imagine is like being outraged in a real interpersonal situation
2: but like so i'm sympathetic to what you're saying but at the same time it's like, you know, like getting punched in the face multiple times doesn't like diminish the pain of getting punched in the face multiple times. <laughs> I have the feeling, Tamler, of what you're expressing. But everything that I see makes me think that they are like because they keep doing it. And it can't just be for like upvotes or whatever the equivalent is likes.
0: I, I, well, Molly, you, you give in the paper – Uh, a lot of reason why they might be, right? That the cost of outrage in the digital age have gone way down, of expressing outrage. And the benefits, the social benefits, have gone up. So wouldn't one expect people to be, and as as you write, wouldn't you expect people to be expressing outrage even in cases when they didn't quite feel it to the same degree?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the one of the intriguing hypotheses is that the technology could be in some ways and for some people divorcing the experience of outrage from the expression of it. And I mean, it, I think that it's likely that there's not a perfect correlation between the two. And I mean, if you think about it, in the framework of habits. Like what habits do is they sort of, they, they outsource some of the cognitive effort to, to like stored motor representations. Right. And so, um, things that traditionally get rewarded, if you do them over and over again, become habitized. And that saves you the cognitive effort of having to decide to do that thing in the moment. And the, the hypothesis, and again, like, we need more data to really test this idea, but it could be the case that expressing outrage gets some positive reinforcement through the design of these platforms. And so, whereas initially we're like feeling this emotion and we want to do something about it. And so we very intentionally express our outrage, but it's possible that that sort of that sequence of action through the process of reinforcement could then occur in response to the stimulus and the the emotion that motivates an intentional behavior wouldn't necessarily even have to be there as strongly to evoke the behavior.
2: You know, the way that you describe it reminds me of watching my daughter um, browse Instagram, Hmm. where all she does is click like on her feed for every picture for everybody she follows. And it's like, I'm like, what? (sighs) Like, you, you know, learn a little bit of Python and you could save yourself, (laughs) you know, you could save yourself hours because you're not looking at that. Like, I know she's not because I've posted things and she's liked it. And then later on, I'm like, Hey, did you you see that picture I posted? And she'll be like, uh, (laughs) maybe I think I liked it. But I thought you liked it. (laughs) Yeah. And there's and there and there that leads me to this to this uh, funny asymmetry, which is that when someone likes a picture of mine, I imagine the full sincerity of their emotion. Mm. And then like, but really, everybody's just going through their phone and clicking, 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 clicking. And in the case of moral outrage, it's like, really, maybe the action is is more in the people who are reading the posts of serial moral outrage posters. I, I don't know. Yeah. You,
0: I mean, the analogy uses snacking, right? Mm-hmm. Like you just start, you used just start mindlessly snacking on potato chips or whatever. Yeah. That's, which is, I think, clearly what's going on at least some of the time for some of the expressions, right?
1: That's what it feels like to me, and and I I'm I'm planning some some studies to see if it's there in the data.
2: Oh, you're so you're so careful. You're so careful <laughs> about your claims.
0: <laughs> I take it already as established. But uh, what kind of studies are you doing?
1: <laughs> well, so um, right around the time I was working on this, I I saw this amazing paper. Uh, from uh, from NYU, and the first author is Billy Brady, and he's working with Jay Va- Van Bavel and John Joost, um, looking at uh, at how expressions of moral emotions go viral on Twitter. And it's this beautiful paper, and they show that um, every moral emotional word in a tr- in a tweet, which they define as uh, a word that has both moral and emotional content. They use various standard uh, dictionaries to define these words. Uh, every moral, emotional word in a tweet uh, increases the likelihood of being retweeted by 20%. This is especially the case for uh, tweeting about political topics like gun control and gay marriage within network. So these right. moral, emotional tweets go viral amongst people who agree with you politically. I think there are a lot of really interesting analyses you can do with this kind of social media data. So um, Billy, who who was the first author of this paper, is going to come work with me next year in the lab, and we're we're planning some work to really test out some of these hypotheses.
0: You say that um, in the competition for advertising revenue, um, content that it is an invitation to outrage mm-hmm. it gets gets more gets more clicks yeah and so that's got to add even more fuel to this fire right because now in addition to the added incentives for us to express outrage and the lower costs of doing that, there's also just way more stuff that we encounter that can trigger it,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. I think that there's now a lot of evidence that the business model of the big tech companies, is about making money off of our attention. The longer they can hold your eyeballs onto the screen, the more money they make. And through both sort of perhaps... Directed uh, research and also just data driven, sort of bottom up machine learning uh, investigations, uh, they have discovered the kinds of content that are most likely to hold people's eyeball- eyeballs the longest. And there's really good research on this as well by Jonah Berger and Katie Milkman at UPenn um, that has looked at what predicts virality in, for example, New York Times articles. And it's really all about emotion, and particularly these high arousal emotions. Um, both positive and negative, but anger is really like one of the, the, the top drivers of virality and content. And so if you have built a system that makes the most money on the content that goes the most viral, then you're creating essentially a natural selection process where it's survival of the content that provokes the most Outrage. I mean, it, it's yeah.
2: literally, it's li- you know, it's literally what Dawkins intended by the by the term meme. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like the, it's the it's, exactly. It's the medics. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And so this is how you get fake news that outperforms real news because the headlines are designed to trigger the most outrage. And I think this is really what's driving um, the the data that I that I included in the paper. So I, I was able to, to reanalyze a data set um, from a fantastic study by Will Hoffman, Linda Skitka, and colleagues um, that was published yeah, in a Science great, a few years thing. ago. And yay, open data. It's so awesome okay. that they shared their data because uh, that was how I was able to do this analysis. And they had luckily um, – so the study – uh they, they they pinged people on their smartphones several times a day and asked them if they had uh learned about, committed, been the target of or witnessed any moral or immoral actions within the last hour and they were doing this five times. A day over a number of days, like a week or something. So they they built this really, really rich and, and uh, detailed data set on people's experiences of morality in everyday life. And thankfully for addressing this set of questions, they had included questions about um, if you learn about something moral or immoral, uh, where did you learn about that? And they had social media as an option. So what I did with the data was I, I basically looked at... Uh, moral emotions uh, that were triggered by the uh, learning about an immoral act uh, when that act was encountered online versus in person versus other forms of media like TV, news, radio. And I I found that that outrage was strongest when learned about online, when the immoral act was learned about online relative to... to uh, acts in person and other forms of media, and like I think what's driving those differences is that it has to be different content. Because like, I, yeah, I, if if you're just looking at sort of medium effects on on a, a controlling for what the act is, like, I I think the effects would be really small if non-existent. So I I, right. I can't it's say like bombing
2: a bunch of innocent people versus getting cut in line.
1: Right. But, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I I I don't think that um, this data can. I, this data is ambiguous with respect to whether it's the content or uh, the medium that is that is uh, driving these differences, and I, I think it's likely to be content um, by virtue of the fact that online platforms are selecting for a particular kind of content that is is going to be a sort of amplified um, outrage.
2: Right. Yeah. Another uh,
1: another question that um, that was actually uh, posed. By one of the very smart students who was interviewing at Yale this year, um, is is whether uh, part of the amplification of outrage in online settings is the fact that it's a it's a shared experience in a way, like because you're yeah. you're expressing it on a social network, like by definition, that's uh, sort of participating with other people. And I I think that's right. I think that's a really smart observation where if you're sort of like sitting in a room alone by yourself, like you might feel somewhat outraged about something, but then if you like talk about it with somebody else, you can feed off of each other and set up this sort of mutual social reinforcement of like, Oh, you bond, right. You, you know, I wanted to actually
2: ask one of the things that you talk about is, um, the low cost, right? So Hmm. shaming for instance if you view it as a form of moral punishment um uh shaming online i know this is one of tamler's pet topics but the cheapness of being able to punish via an expression of outrage is is one of the things that seems to motivate it and here's where there might be a real difference and what i want to ask you is so, so there's always been right we we have a decent understanding of how how and why people punish but the the solid findings on punishment are when you are victimized right so all the economic games that 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 we have in the field that show that like if you are given an unfair offer you retaliate at some cost to yourself Mm. my understanding is that third-party punishment is much weaker um both in experimental settings and, and probably in real life because you're incurring a risk in person, mm. but you can do it. So, like, it's all third-party punishment on on Twitter and mm-hmm. Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. And so, is is that is that a right characterization of of the data that there, that altruistic punishment is tends to be a weaker uh, weaker finding than 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 second-party punishment that that people.
1: So, um, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I first of all don't. I don't like the term altruistic punishment. Yeah, <laughs> um, because yeah. because um, I, well, I mean altruism as a term itself is like very fraught, as you know.
2: I'm sure Paul is writing a book on why it's bad
1: <laughs> against <laughs> altruism. <laughs> um, when I was uh, when I was working with Ernst, we did a study uh, where we looked at second and third party costly punishment, and yeah. The main question was, was to try and understand uh, the extent to which both of these forms of punishment, so pun- punishing somebody who's screwed you versus, versus somebody else you don't know. Um, to what extent is this motivated by retributive motives, like you want to hurt that person because they're a shitty person, um, versus deterrent motives, so you want to send them a message, teach a lesson that this is not okay, so that maybe in the future they would be less likely to do that behavior. And the term altruistic punishment really comes from this idea that in the case of third-party punishment, it's altruistic to punish somebody who hasn't harmed you, but might go on and harm other people out in the world. And so you're like incurring this cost, but it's going to benefit the group. And I I think that, that the term altruistic really does kind of in the psychological sense, hinge on there being some benefit
2: it's like, right. to the to punishment. The
1: so yeah. Yeah. we were interested if you took away any possible benefits of punishment, um, in terms of deterring future harms, um, how much would people like, still punish?
2: So like, were these like one, like one shot cooperation games, like com- common. So they're like,
1: one shot, uh, trust games with punishment. But, mm-hmm. um, even in a one shot game, you could argue that, well, even though the game ends once they leave the lab, um, somebody who's been punished for behaving unfairly could leave the lab and go out into the world and have learned something and behave more fairly in the future. So we wanted to, we wanted to basically create a situation to rule out any possible future benefits of right. punishment. And we did that by by creating a admittedly artificial situation, but this is what we do at experiments sometimes. Um, we created a situation where you could reduce the payoff of of somebody um, to punish them, but they never find out that their payoff has been reduced. If somebody behaves unfairly and then they, they walk away with a low payoff, they don't know if it's because the pie size was small or because the pie size started out big, but then they lost money due to punishment. Right. So in that way, we can directly control whether we tell people who are being punished that you've been punished or not. Right. Both kinds of punishment can satisfy retributive motives because the payoff is reduced, right. but um, only fully transparently communicated punishment can teach a lesson to the other person.
0: So it seems like I, I'm not sure that both do satisfy the retributive yeah, uh, the retributive motive because part of the retributive motive is having the person know that they're being sure. punished for what they did. Sure, sure, sure. And, and then you take that away on most like philosophical retributivist theories, that's no longer something that would be justified not not for future benefits but mm-hmm. they have to know that they violated a norm and they're being punished for violating the norm
1: sure okay so hidden punishment if anything is underestimating like the degree to which retributive motives might drive right uh, yeah. might drive behavior and you could you could also call it just spite just <laughs> i'm sort right. of i'm sort of thinking of this as a as a nasty like i just I'm 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 happy the less that you have
2: it reminds me of like spitting in someone's food if you work at a exactly that's a really good
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) they'll
2: they'll never know but you know (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) that's a really good analogy so if if people particularly in the case of of third-party punishment are really just doing it uh for these very high-minded like I want to teach this guy a lesson uh, reasons, then it it should be really strongly reduced when you take away that communicative function of punishment. Right. That's not what we find at all. We basically find for both second and third party punishment that people punish almost as much um, when Went the the target it. never finds out. Um, there and there is a significant difference, but it's 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 a small benefit that you get from uh from the communicative part. And as you as you say, Tamler, like that could also be retributive about like. Wanting them to know about it and and have nothing have little to do with deterrence at all. So and well, I I think that both second and third party punishment um, contain an element of like of Schadenfreude of 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 nastiness um, yeah. and. People are unwilling to report this, by the way. So, in that same study, after after the after they made their decisions, we asked them to rate sort of like, "Oh, how much did you punish because you wanted to teach them a lesson?" versus "How much did you punish because you because uh, it was fun and it felt good?" And like, people really don't want to endorse these motives that are a bit nasty, but are their behavior suggests that that is driving their choice. What-
0: one of the things to go back to the, to Dave's question that he alluded to earlier, if you express outrage, not in the form of paying, you know, a dollar to make somebody else lose 50 cents or whatever, but if you actually tell a person off in a real interpersonal situation in public or even in private, like, that's a really scary thing to do. Yeah. That, you know, like. It could be physically scary, depending on the situation, or it could be even just the embarrassment of it or the, you know, you don't know how the person's going to... The unpredictability of of, of where that's going to go, how other people will react. I mean, this is all of like middle school and high school is people (laughs) trying to decide whether or not to tell other people how they're behaving is wrong and suffer the social consequences of doing that. And that's the thing that it seems like... Is completely removed on social media unless you're yeah. expressing outrage at your own sort of group or your own uh, the people that you know already agree with you on most things, right?
1: Absolutely, I and mean, it, it's it's super risky to express outrage and punish in person um, because probably if the person who you're you're targeting is. Committing a, a norm violation, then they're also maybe somebody <laughs> yeah, who
2: would—they're like more willing to like fuck you up. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I mean, it. Uh, one example that comes to mind um, is the, the 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 there were two people in uh, in Portland who uh, approached a man who was making racist comments, and he had a knife, and and one of them one of them right. died, another was severely injured. So and it, it is literally life threatening um, right. to. Express to to moralistically punish somebody uh, in real life and and um, online that's that's reduced. Although I will say that um, that um, particular groups of people, vulnerable groups of people, can be very very vulnerable to um, abuse online that can spill out into well, yeah, the that's what I was world. Like say. doxing, it's, right?
2: Yeah. Cause when it crosses over, you know, I'm thinking again of of Jay's like that beautiful chart of the red and the blue networks mm-hmm. um, where you you see how little interconnectedness there is, but there are some nodes there that leak into the other side. And the yeah. cost of expressing moral outrage if you are a person who has followers that are even one degree of separation away from you, you will incur some cost. Like, you, yeah. you know, you'll get. And there are some people like, I think, who are just more likely to inhabit those worlds, mm-hmm. like the, the middle part. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if those people in the Actually, I kind of feel that way. I know we have listeners who vary quite widely mm-hmm. in their opinions. And I, that that actually keeps me in check from, from expressing just because <laughs> I know, like, oh, well, no matter what I say about this, like, this, I'm going to get shit. I'm going yeah. like, to, you know.
0: oh man you gotta we need a dave uncensored on (laughs) so yeah i mean i guess that uh, there's something there's something that seems important about being willing to undergo some sort of risk it shouldn't be the risk of getting you know killed but it should be some sort of risk or some sort of social cost in order to express outrage so it isn't that cheap then your outrage has greater value mm-hmm. and um and but also what? you'll use it more sparingly and not in cases where it probably isn't warranted and all you're doing is just you know signaling to other people that you're on the right team
1: yeah, well, and I think there there needs to be like in order to be socially effective, outrage expression does need to distinguish between really 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 bad stuff and just mildly bad stuff. Otherwise, it is sort of loses its it loses its uh, fidelity as as a signal of 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 the lines you shouldn't cross. Doesn't Matt
0: Damon get in trouble for saying? <laughs>
1: Oh, Um. I was going to push a
2: little on this because I I share your intuition, but there's nothing that seems to me like it's inevitable that the expression of this outrage is that cheap expressions of outrage and by cheap here, meaning easy to express and communicated that that alone Would degrade it that like when you say that it loses value, does it necessarily lose value? Like if 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 a million people tweet at you that you're a racist pig, um I don't know that the value of calling someone racist pig has gone down.
0: The value of each person goes down.
2: But why does it have to be risk? I guess what I mean is why does it have to feel like it's a risk or why do you think it's a virtue to express moral outrage when it's not cheap?
1: Well, I think that we um, – I think that we automatically make inferences about people's values from observing the decisions they make. So, for example – I have a colleague here at Yale, um, Julian Hara-Edinger, who has done some really nice work on what he calls a naive utility calculus. And basically, the idea is that if you see somebody um, paying a higher cost for something, you infer that they care about that thing more than if they only paid a low cost for it. And so and I, I do think that the costs we incur to express outrage do, to some extent, uh, signal to others how much we, we care about those issues.
2: So it signals sincerity, do you think? Because mm. so, so I, I guess what I'm getting at is suppose that I really sincerely hate racists, mm-hmm. and I see a racist comment, and I'm like, you know, you, how dare you, you asshole! And then you know, a thousand other people do the same. Mm. I, it seems like a a, a weird a, a a weird requirement that my outrage by dint of being the single one who gave it and being therefore perhaps more costly or more risky to me, that, that, that that's of more value.
1: Well, I, yeah, I don't think I disagree with you. Um, I think, I think one thing that we should try to understand better is the extent to which people sort of can substitute cheap and, ultimately maybe in effective forms of of social action with more costly and 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 more perhaps authentic forms of activism so i sort of yeah. um, in the in the domain of like i don't know charitable uh, giving you can you can tweet your support for a, a <laughs> cause or you can actually give money to the cause you do that
0: the ice the, what was the ice bucket challenge
1: yeah and I think there, it would
0: be more valuable if you were calling somebody a racist on a subway in New York, and the person was much bigger than you, and you might get your ass kicked. That would I, I would think you're definitely more outraged by racism than if you you know okay, retweet yes. somebody that said Trump's shithole country comment is racist or whatever or some yeah. parallel thing. Like it's not definitely true that you're not like that much against racism even if you do it in a cost-free environment but it's from a from an outsider's perspective it's it's more of a it's it's more of a reliable signal if there's right. cost
2: so that and that's what I, I think that's what i was trying to get at because because it doesn't by dint of being cheap mean you're insincere or that you don't care a whole lot it's just harder to distinguish those who are sincere versus yeah. those who aren't i think and that's right. and i think I think one of the things, and this is where I was going to get to an accusation that Tamler is a secret consequentialist <laughs> I think one of the reasons it might not be valuable, like why we say it's not as valuable, is because if I went and up to a person on a bus and told them they were racist assholes, their reaction to that would be very, very different than the reaction if somebody tweeted to me that I'm a racist asshole. Like all of the emotions and the interaction that I might have actually might be more effective at making somebody consider that they're being racist than a flyby tweet. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's just that these costlier versions of like putting your neck out to call someone out in person is just actually more effective. And that's why, Tamler, you value it. You just didn't know that that's why you valued it. You th-
0: I, I mean, I think that's right. The, the two, it's not mutually exclusive explanations. No, right. either or. <laughs> Remember? Either, either a consequentialist or a deontologist. That's it. Choose one. Can I ask you, uh, Molly, so the other part of this paper is that you say the social benefits of outrage expression are diminished... In these kinds of environments, and the social costs can be increased, so you talk about deep the way it deepens divides and social mm-hmm. polarization declines in trust can you Can you talk about the the costs of this outrage phenomenon, this explosion of outrage?
1: yeah, so I mean, I think that this hypothesis relates more specifically to partisan and group conflicts. And I should also say that uh, the evidence is right now still quite mixed in terms of whether this is actually happening. So uh, there is a a lot of evidence for homophily and social networks. People cluster together with like-minded people. But whether we are living in echo chambers is still controversial. There's evidence for this. There's evidence against this. I, mean, I think the sort of extreme version of echo chamber can't be correct because we all, uh, yeah, you know, What would
2: we be reacting to? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Like, obviously, there is some information flow between uh, different partisan groups. I mean, that, that's, that's clear. And it, and it seems like a useful distinction to be made is between um, sort of the consumption of information versus talking about and interacting around information where maybe the boundaries are quite fluid when it comes to information flow and and people on the left are seeing uh, information from both the left and the right um, and, and vice versa, but people on the left are mostly talking about it with other people on the left and vice versa. Um, so, and I think that's an important distinction to be made. Um, but, I mean, it, if it's the case that, that social networks online are separating us to a certain extent, uh, and, and, and this is, you know, that, that beautiful figure from the, from the Brady paper, right? Like, if, if part of, of outrage expression is about sort of telling people, others in the group, like, what is acceptable or unacceptable, uh, then the sort of purpose... For outrage, why why it evolved in the first place one of the one of the reasons um, that in the new environment might might be diminished because you 're sort of preaching to the choir right like right. if you want to change people 's mind. By expressing how bad their view is, and you're only really shouting at people who already agree with you about that, then you're not going to change anyone's mind
2: yeah, that's actually right. a good uh, like a, a a good distinction. I mean I- imagine an analogous person decrying um, you know the foul behavior of a politician who used to have to stand on a soapbox in the middle of the street. Right. You don't know your audience. Exactly. Like, everybody that's walking by, like, if it's a 50-50 split of a liberal conservative, you're going to have, you know, uh, unless you're in a particular city or something, um, you don't know. Mm-hmm. But in your Twitter followers, you know you're going to get all of those, like, you know, like my daughter scrolling through and hitting the like buttons.
0: This, this is really interesting, the idea that your outrage – has in this environment very little chance often of reaching the people you're outraged at. And so.
1: Well, I think it does reach, I think it does reach them. Like I like, like people on the left know that that, like everyone knows who's mad at them. Like when I express
0: outrage, outrage at Jeff Sessions, Mm. say, and some you know, new tough on crime policy, you know, or just inflating crime Mm -hmm. statistics or something like that. Not only does he obviously never find out that I expressed outrage at that. I mean, he knows there are people out there that are. But, but, you know, probably uh, most of the people, even with our diverse audience, Dave, I can't imagine there are any Jeff Sessions fans. um, Because (laughs) our audience doesn't really... We're going to get you know, emails like we have like the libertarian you know uh anti p c right but not the like Jeff sessions, we need to be tougher on crime right.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, right
0: so it really does you know if i and as somebody who is you know that's a that's a topic that fuels my outrage is um, our policing policies and our mm-hmm. mass, you know and, and our the our criminal justice system. It really does. When I express those things, I'm really talking to people who more or less agree with me already. Right. And the whole point of outrage evolutionarily is to change the norms of people who are violating right. those norms, in yeah. your view. Right? Yeah.
1: And, and the hard work of sort of civics is having difficult conversations and right. changing people's minds on the basis of of arguments that that speak to what you think is right and what you think is wrong. And because we now are in a world where we, I was going to say we have control over our information flow, but it's a, it's a weird kind of control, right? Because I'm not sitting at my computer, like turning up the dial on more liberals in my feed and turning down the dial on on, on other kinds of people, or whatever, like the algorithms are doing this on the basis of what is is automatically attracting our attention, which, as we discussed earlier, like is not necessarily um, what we would intentionally do so the tech companies one of their one of their um, favorite arguments is that well we 're just giving people what they want, but and there, there are multiple levels of want, right? There are our sort of first order desires and there's our second order desires about like what we want to want. And the algorithms so far are really only operating on these first order desires. And the problem with that is that again, like if we want to live in a world where we cooperate with people who have diverse views, that means doing the hard work of having those difficult conversations but because our sort of uh, automatic preferences are sort of our, our our gut impulses are to to seek out the most immediately rewarding interactions like those are not going to be the difficult interactions that do the hard work of democracy those are going to be the ones where people are patting us on the back and saying like you're right. so awesome because i agree with you
2: i actually this is a really good point and i think that it's a different point. Um, because it is not a point about the echo chambers. It's not a it's not a point about the content of the information that you're receiving. It is a point about public discourse being fly by night rather than having actual conversation. Right. Yeah. So if somebody disagrees with me vehemently on Twitter, I can block them. Yep. Yeah. Or like I can stop responding or mm. whatever, you know, I can mute them. And and so it's not so much that well, I mean it, it is that, that I'm mostly hearing people who agree with me, but it's also that when people disagree with me, you don't have the chance to really talk to them. I mean, I'm a hundred percent certain that if you lump together like minded people about political issues of the day, there will still be disagreement on a mm-hmm. number of issues mm-hmm. and the only way that you would grow and change your opinion potentially is if you have a relationship with those people and mm-hmm. you sat and you said, Oh, you know, we both hate factory farm meat, but I'm pro guns and I'm anti. Wait, what? Like, yeah. so then you talk about it, mm-hmm. right? You, there's no mute button there. There's yeah. no blocking. There's no like scro- it's you know, a dialogue. That's yeah. actually, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. no, no. I was going to say, it seems like, it seems like a, like an obvious point but i think Mm -hmm. that it is i think that we confuse amount of information with quality of information exchange Mm -hmm. right so we have access to all of the information in the world and people seem puzzled that why aren't we smart why aren't we less biased given that we can look up all of this information and like, find out the truth, and and it's not because we lack the availability of the information; is because we lack the social context that is required for actual ch- attitude
0: change to occur.
1: And ba- and bias is a strategy for dealing with too much information.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. I mean, one way of reading the the take home message of your paper would be really bleak right (laughs) like i know it's kind of depressing things are (laughs) like this isn't changing i mean you know the incentives are all there and and the tech companies are if anything only going to get better at targeting people and at generating stuff that generates more clicks and um i is there is there a way out of this that uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I know that, that that this is all very preliminary.
1: Well, I mean, I don't see it as all bleak, and I also want to very strongly acknowledge that any time there, every time there has been a new technology, there has been a sort of moral panic about, you know, what are going to be the consequences for society? Caught,
2: and, the cotton gin is really what. <laughs>
1: um, so, I mean, again, I, these are, these are a set of questions and I, I, I think that, that the paper does, does lay out somewhat of, of a roadmap showing where things could go wrong. Um, if, if some of these these hypotheses turn out to be correct, but I mean, first of all, I I think we need to know how much of a risk, um, particularly uh, polarization, is this a risk of of uh, of social media use? We need, if it is, then like, what is the scope of it? And and then I I I feel optimistic about um, our ability to turn it around. If we keep having these conversations, I think just making people aware is, is the first step. I mean, that's really cliche. I know, but like once I could see in myself the patterns of how I was using social media in ways that didn't feel intentional and and consistent with, with my own goals and values, like I, I think I've become better at it. And, um, and and so it was. It was just a matter of, of of understanding that. And the the point that I really want to emphasize um, with with this set of ideas is that you know morality is something that that we see as central to being human. And I think it's really important to ask ourselves and to have a serious conversation how we feel about our moral emotions being used to make a lot of money for tech companies to sell ads. Like there's something that just feels really dirty about that.
2: Yeah. I admire your optimism, but I don't know how we can step, take a step back. I mean, I don't know that we, that that's the way to say it. You know, we mm. take a step forward in some novel way, but you know, and as I'm thinking about, it, one thing came to mind. Actually, um, I saw um, a Twitter exchange um, with Nick uh, Christakis, um, and it was. Somebody suggested an idea for – this was in the context of, which we haven't talked too much about, but of, of the, the public shaming, mm-hmm. right? When people – the piling on phenomenon. Yeah. And somebody suggested a, a pretty interesting idea and Chrisakis was like, actually, we're working on, on some software that might do just this. Mm-hmm. And what it was was when you see somebody's tweet that outrages you, you can get a sense of how many people have already piled on. Mm-hmm before you tweet like you can actually see because it would change my mind like if if it's just one person there's nothing that feels wrong to me about expressing my my disapproval for one person but if i found out that like that day 500,000 people had also expressed their disapproval i would feel really really shitty because that's not what i meant Right, it's not and like bad after the after the
1: fact. You mean like as a teaching function or
2: as a no? Or as a, deter- real, a real time.
1: But what about and, like what about, I don't know? What about social norms? Like I don't know if if I like feel outraged about something and I see five hundred other people, five hundred yeah, thousand other people are outraged about it too. That like, be,
2: it was very underdescribed, obviously, because yeah. it was a tweet. I imagined it as some some warning signal that like hey enough people have have already yeah. chimed in on this or, like, maybe even yeah. a prediction graph?
1: That, yeah, maybe. That people- I don't know. It's tricky because, like, then you're getting into, like then you're getting into the territory of having to make judgments about what is enough. And I mean, this is actually... And people
2: would game it, too. People would game yeah. it. Well, let's I see mean, how many I've,
1: I've often gotten asked the question, like, well, is this all bad? Is more online shaming always bad? And I'm, I'm not sure that it is because, I mean, I think, hmm. you know, you, you have to consider the particular injustice or norm violation that we're talking about. And there are certain... Norm violations in society that have gone seriously underpunished, and yeah. if social media is just turning up the dial, then for things that are at equilibrium, so to speak, then you're going to make more type uh, type one errors, so to speak. Um, but there's always a balance between the false positive and the false negative, right? So, I mean, right. this is so, a, this so is a philosopher. A, Tamler, this is a philosopher question. Pa- well,
0: I mean, it seems like power dynamics is a big factor here. Mm-hmm. And when, you know, if, if, if just a, a person like the Justine Sacco... Is that her name yeah you know she she 's not a powerful person, right She made a racist tweet, and so there really is a sense that that was piling on and piling on to the point where if you were one of the people you you know I think like i I totally feel what dave's saying there that mm-hmm. you you 'd feel bad about that because but you know the same wouldn 't be true if that were you know harvey weinstein or right. or even somebody who with a lot more power who made a comparably racist, you know, right, joke, right. Uh, yeah. insensitive joke or whatever it was that it, then it would feel. Oh, so I think the power relation of the person being shamed is a big, is a big factor. There.
1: So maybe, maybe a tool, this is, this is probably a bad idea. Cause I'm just thinking out loud here, but like maybe a tool that, that like scales outrage, um, by number of followers of the target. So, like, yeah. maintaining a right. ratio or something. Yeah. Did you <laughs>
0: read that uh, uh, Katie Royfe, um Harper's piece...
1: Uh, um, you know, to. well, I read I read outraged pieces about the piece before the piece came out. <laughs> right. So, I'm, yeah.
0: But there was a funny dynamic to it, which I think is common in a lot of these things. So I, it's not she doesn't make some good points. She does. But there is this underlying tenant where critics of Me Too are being silenced. And as somebody pointed out, I think it was Michelle Goldberg in The Times. It's like, here's Katie Roifey. Writing, you know, this widely shared article for for Harper is going on CBS this morning to talk about it. It's 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 a there's something somewhat paradoxical about talking about how silenced you are when you're stop it, Charlie. (laughs) i'm getting silenced right now (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, when you have those kinds of platforms in the first place so i think that's sort of like you know that (laughs) complicates these things when the person is who's complaining about being silenced has a platform to reach so many people in so many different ways Mm -hmm.
2: yeah It, it makes me want to in tony soprano's mom's voice say Oh, poor you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but at the same time, she did get a ton of shit for it before it was even published. And there was a lot of, you know. Um, and well, I think is- so, it's a really complicated issue. Like, you don't want to minimize, like, how a powerful person might feel when they're, like, when a Twitter mob is after them. But at the same time, it is. People do seem to be a- complaining a lot you know, people with, even in public about how they're, they're afraid to say anything.
2: I, I think that, that, that we can also distinguish when, when Molly, you're talking about, you know, the, the goods versus the ills of social media. I think that, that the most, for what it's worth, the most powerful forces of change in the way <laughs> there's, it's another time, you know. um, uh, the the most powerful sources of of whatever you want to call it i don't know if real changes occurred or at least awareness mm-hmm. have been the voices of women who at at great risk to their career mm. took to media to mm-hmm. talk about it mm-hmm. so there it's like yeah me, social media is facilitating the spreading of this mm-hmm. but the value comes from the original the original person who who shared this actually being going going out on a limb and mm-hmm. taking a big risk like these people who who could have who could be blacklisted yeah and once that stops happening and i think this is there's nothing that's that much at stake for them mm-hmm. and and i think those are just going to be less valuable it's it's so social media to the extent that it can share widely information Still needs to have at its core for that information to be valuable and change. With, like it's still, I we still need to feel that sincerity and mm-hmm. the, the the emotion.
1: Yeah, um, and I mean, I think that 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 speaks to what we we're talking about earlier, which is that we we make inferences about the importance yeah. of issues on the basis of how costly it was to express that outrage. And
0: I have a grounds for optimism. I mean, like, like you said, and just at a personal individual level, I think more and more people are starting to realize the futility of the outrage <laughs> cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it can last... It can last a while, but I don't know if it can last a lifetime for a lot of people. And and then also, you know, Twitter sometimes, Dave, we've had this. Every once in a while, we'll get just trashed by someone on Twitter. And rather than just ignore it, we'll engage with the person. Yeah. And then if we do that, it becomes l- like magically, almost immediately, yeah. like a really respectful conversation where you don't end up necessarily agreeing but now the hostility is gone and you're really trying to see stuff from the other person's perspective and you know this is even better in emails and stuff like that all with strangers with no cost but it's a really nice dynamic when you could get yourself to do it
1: yeah, I've, this is this is this is something I've I've been thinking about lately, and I was I was actually just having a, a conversation about this with um, with Kataili, who um, is is doing work on dehumanization. Uh, he's at Northwestern, and um, we were talking about like this phenomenon of people like spewing hate on on social media, yeah. and then like then the the target like response and then there's this almost like surprise, like oh, there's actually like a human <laughs> at the other end of this, yeah. Which makes me wonder, like, well, what is motivating it in the first place? Like, if if your goal in expressing this, yeah, uh, this sentiment is to like make the other person feel bad, if that's your goal, then it it seems like you shouldn't be surprised when they like actually respond.
2: Yeah, that's a case where it really is. It's almost like. It's it's almost like a naturalistic experiment where it's de like especially famous people are kind of dehumanized on on a platform like Twitter so that so people feel free to like just do these drive-by like hate tweets for instance and if they respond and if they say hey and there was an instance I read of Sarah this, Silverman uh, the, the Sarah Silverman one Such which a great amazing story. Yeah. it was amazing yeah um, but that. That again, you know, I think, Tamler, you're right. It's similar. I think it's similar to the point I was trying to make earlier about the nature of discourse in the natural, <laughs> in whatever, like the natural state of affairs before Twitter. Um, but where it takes effort on our part to engage, whereas we would have had to engage had someone come up to us and said, You guys are fucking idiots. Like, you kind of have to say something. But on Twitter, you don't have to. So it kind of takes some effort. And it's dra- when I do engage in those things, it's draining. <sighs> because yeah. for some, there's this asymmetry of emotional cost to accusing someone on Twitter and expressing outrage versus receiving it. Mm-hmm. Like every single one of them is just like driving the nine-inch nails through my hand. No. Like, He's yeah, so I'm, sensitive. I'm sensitive. I am sensitive. Yeah. But, but yeah, I'm glad you guys are, are optimistic. Uh, <laughs> i think we're just all headed to well i try
1: movie. to i try to be i'm not always optimistic <laughs> you
0: know that story that that happened where dan harman your boy dave um he apparently mistreated a writer when he was re- uh, show running for community he, he kind of harassed her um while she was there and she called him out on twitter and this was a couple years later this this happened recently And Dan Harmon went on his podcast and gave like a nine minute apology saying, detailing exactly how he'd harmed her and why he felt so bad about it. The conditions that sort of allowed him to rationalize it. And she was, and and so she, she, you know, she then tweeted out that she was so, so relieved to hear him do it and that she forgave him and it was a really nice example, all through like Twitter and podcasts, yeah. of like yeah. the kind of thing that we're we're talking about. Um, yeah, uh,
2: that's why I like the podcast format. It gives gives you know people are patient to listen that long, but it really allows for for way more nuanced discussion than whatever the two hundred and eighty character limit. One of the things, and Dave Chappelle talks about this in in the second of his latest specials, where he says, um, "It's very easy." to vilify and and treat someone uh who who makes a mistake as as now now an enemy right Mm -hmm. so this is what happens with you know like ben affleck or whatever i think is the is the example that he uses when you know a man who tries to come out and say i am all for like the me too movement and then somebody says well like (laughs) i think dave Chappelle's line is you touched my titty in 95 motherfucker. And then he's like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. And, and the point he makes is that, and he's, he's talking about the civil rights movement. And he says, if, if the movement is to succeed, you're going to have to accept flawed allies. And you're going to have to accept. And I think this grander point of, of like what makes me heartened. I hadn't seen that Dan Harmon exchange is, is the willingness to say, Um, you fucked up and you're admitting that you fucked up and that's. I accept that that may not be the core of who you are.
1: So we'll see. We'll see. Uh,
0: Well, thank you. This has been really fun. My voice is gone. I apologize to our listeners and to you guys.
2: Okay, before we go, we actually recorded this episode before the Florida school shooting.
0: Um, Since then...
2: I mean, I think it's safe to say that that the internet has been full of outrage and Molly, you wanted to come on and talk a little bit about um, about maybe the positive sides of outrage is that is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say. and I think we touched on this a little bit in our earlier recording, but one thing I just want to make sure is very clear is that the research that that I and others have been doing about how social media affects outrage, is really about understanding what's happening. And it's less about making value judgments about whether social media is all bad or all good, because I don't think it's all bad or all good. I think the promise of social media is that it democratizes the power of outrage and can amplify voices of the less powerful. Um, One broad question that I think we should be asking ourselves is, is social media living up to that promise? Uh, Because as we've seen over the last few days, there have been some very, very powerful and poignant expressions of outrage from the kids uh, in Florida and Parkland. And one thing that I care about is, is understanding whether the structure of social media will allow those voices to get the attention that they deserve or whether they'll get lost in the noise of other expressions of outrage about other topics. I I think it's just really important to make clear that the effects of social media on outrage can be positive, they can be negative. I think it's most important that we figure out uh, how it all works.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I actually I think that this incident has shown both sides of that question. Pretty strongly. I mean, it 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 has been exceptionally moving to see some of these students, the protests that they're organizing, and the the statements that they've made. And the reason I have seen it, and I've seen so many of them, is because of the internet, because of social media, um, because of Twitter, because of Facebook. Um, and that is undeniably valuable. And then I've also seen a lot of the stuff, I mean, we don't have to rehash it, but I've also seen what I take to be counterproductive expressions of outrage about this. Just the group of people on my Facebook Facebook friends who aren't just expressing outrage about this, but kind of insulting um, anybody who is resistant to certain gun control policies. And I just don't think that's the way to persuade people by insulting them. And, you know, one of the things that the students have done is actually, I think— I don't know. Maybe they have the potential to convince people who aren't already convinced yeah. by this. You right. know, it's one thing to convince me. I you didn't they, as as moving as I found it. I have the same beliefs as I had before about gun control, but if they can reach people who have d- different beliefs, that's that's the key, right? That's how this stuff gets changed.
1: Yeah. And the the real question here is if they can reach those people. And One thing that will be important to watch in the coming weeks is whether this can be a national conversation or whether it becomes polarized. And there's some some relevant data. I was was reading a couple of days ago a paper published in 2015 in Psych Science by Pablo Barbera and colleagues. And they looked at tweets following the Newtown um, school shooting a, a few years ago. And they're able to see the extent to which tweets are being shared across ideological uh, groups or only within liberal and conservative groups. And what they found with Newtown is that in the very first couple of days after the shooting, it looked like a national conversation. It was not very polarized. People were retweeting others who were both similar and distant to them ideologically. But after a couple of days, it polarized, and then it became two conversations. One with liberals shouting at each other about how gun control was needed, and another with conservatives shouting at each other about how gun control was not the solution. And so one question is whether this shooting and the conversation around that on social media follows that same pattern, or whether these kids are able to continue making this a national, non-polarized conversation. Of course, what we have now, which we didn't have to the same extent a few years ago with Newtown, is bots injecting themselves into the debate and driving these more polarized conversations.
0: Which is, you know, you, you can imagine why it's such a ripe terrain for, for sowing this kind of hostility, between the two parties and the fact that there are other governments that are taking advantage of it is in one sense is is not fully surprising it's that's what you would do if you had certain goals to undermine the cohesiveness of a rival nation Mm -hmm. to me what it's illustrating is the natural course of things that
2: that that people much like you know salesmen over a hundred years of, of accruing knowledge about how to con people, um, snake oil salesmen, like that they had some pretty deep psychological knowledge about, about mm-hmm. how to, how to game people that, that this is what, what, what bots are illustrating is just a, a filtered, reduced, dumbed down way of doing what people have been doing all along. And one question that, that I think that is right for, for at least some descriptive analyses is, is, whether or not I mean, when I look at what happened in Florida, this seems like it has a chance of of making more of an impact than other instances mm-hmm. because because the high school students themselves are taking to action yeah and and i I think for various reasons new you know newtown obviously the little children weren't on Twitter and and they weren't going to organize marches. (laughs) And, and I think that, you know, one of the themes that we were discussing before is that, that digital outrage might be cheap in, in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. And I think in this case, that the capacity of the children to actually have their voices heard by the, the sort of the internet platforms and to actually do physically like the you know, whatever they're planning, protesting mm-hmm. by, by walking out. And, and also importantly that they were, that they were expressing their feelings as the shit was going down I know. and they were like communicating to the world. I mean, it's just re- reminiscent of, of the power of the images of Vietnam to, yeah. to change minds. You know, it's the question of what are the essential ingredients to move something beyond the cheapness to -hmm. to actual change?
1: Yeah, I was thinking the same thing uh, on on Friday and Saturday. Uh, It occurred to me that this is the first school shooting, major school shooting, where the victims are teenagers who... Are native speakers of right. the, the digital language uh, that this yeah, has right. never happened before and so we, it, we could be seeing something different and I, I would love for, for that to, to be the case um, The real question is whether those of us participating in the online conversations, are we going to do more than that? Are we going to show up at a protest? Are we going to donate money to uh, to support the movement? Um, and, and, and even we'll just see. vote
0: in midterms, mm-hmm. which, you know, like a lot of people do, don't do. The thing that I think for them, what's so important about late March, you know, that they're doing their protest at the end of March is you know, keep that alive. You got to keep this stuff going until the midterm elections because that's how this stuff, it's going to happen, you know. There's certain politicians who, even if they're moved in a different direction, they're just too funded, well-funded by the NRA to change of, like, make a meaningful vote for gun control that is opposed by that lobby. But if somebody who is less in the bag for the NRA gets in, then that changes.
2: You know, um, one of the, one of the nice things, you know, about social media is that a lot of gun owners and former military themselves expressing views that are contrary to the NRA's stance, um, Mm -hmm. I think is very helpful. Um, But so I'm clicking through And and, you know, trying to read some of the primary literature on studies that have been done pre and post gun control, you know, because a lot of claims are made on both sides. And it's I think it's something that has come up before, but it's one of the most difficult things to study and one of the most difficult things to get non-biased opinions on. And up pops an ad saying, enter for to win your free gun. (laughs) And it's like a picture of an AR-15 and it's it's literally an ad because I landed on on an article that was sort of anti gun control, and the two options are yes, sign me up for my free gun, and no, I don't like guns. What? And so I so I click on no, I don't like guns, and, and I get to this landing page that says. Uh, Are you kidding? And it's just another big picture of the AR-15. Well, you can win the money anyway, but give us our info, sign up for our newsletter and we'll send you the gun. You know, it's, I was, I think, struck by how, how rare it is that I even enter neighborhoods on the internet where that's the kind of ad I would get served up. Yeah. And that this must be, this is some people's normal, you know, normal ads. Mostly I just get ads for, you know, adult friend finder penis pills (laughs) exactly
1: i just don't know how to get an accurate read on the pulse of the nation on this issue i mean i was consumed by social media over the weekend and after spending probably too much time reading those posts i thought oh this is going to be the change like right. everyone, everyone clearly is, is is outraged about this, and finally, maybe something will be done about gun control. And then I went onto Twitter and I just clicked on the hashtag March for Life. And I was astonished to see a pretty much 50 50 split yeah. of people uh, saying gun control is not the answer. And um, certainly, my own personal experiences. Is, is one where my own day-to-day information consumption um, very likely does not reflect the overall landscape of the country.
0: There are studies that show that there is much more widespread support for stricter gun regulations than we currently have. I think the problem is one of passion, that the people who are opposed to gun stricter gun regulations are more passionate about their opposition yeah so they're tweeting about it more yeah yeah
2: i mean that's 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 one of the downsides is is you know say twitter is is not representative totally not totally (laughs) at all and and you can actually lose sight it 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 may be the case that we just feel much more 50 50 reds versus blues as david brooks uh, calls it um then, then it actually is, my hope is that that this conversation can be about whatever whatever it takes to stop people dying, maybe even and here 's the optimist in me Seems maybe even trying to figure out what the best what the best solution empirically would be to stop this stuff from happening um, and i I have to say i 'm a little bit sad. That it takes these high-profile, vivid events to get people talking about deaths from homicide, mm-hmm. firearm homicide. Well, when this is happening in in major cities across, the, you know, way more people die from gun violence than the these in terms statistically. Oh yeah, these are this blips. is
1: the fourth. I think mass shootings are the fourth. Uh, the fourth most harmful in terms of number of deaths. Suicide is is the right, suicide is yeah. the top.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, but but all all of the dying that happens in major cities because of crime, like gang gang related crime, domestic violence, crime, all that stuff that goes on every day. Um, I don't know, maybe it's just the way we're wired. But but sometimes I'm a little saddened that yeah. that it takes takes these things to get people talking when the numbers have been there forever. But anyway, I hope it turns in into something that that can get people actually motivated to
0: do something. I mean, I, I, I feel more optimistic than I have after past shootings. I, I share that and I don't know like, what it is. It's, it's that combination of the students and an actual planned protest and the fact that midterm elections are coming up now. I still gun to my head, like life depended on it. Do I think meaningful regulations will come out of this? I don't know, but I, but I, n- you know, if you ask me that question about, you know, for previous shootings, I would say no. I would be a lot more pessimistic. So I, th-
1: I think the, the one thing I've noticed in the language that the kids are using is uh, they're using language of shame. Uh, and particularly yeah. around the NRA, blood money, these are potentially very powerful narratives that might— hey. Lead to some movement. I hope it
2: transcends, transcends, you know, party affiliation. And, and I think one key difference here is there being a, a call to action specifically. I think, Tamler, you say like talking about the, the elections in March, like there is protests are always better when there is a clear goal to move toward. And if it is figuring out which of our elected representatives get funding from the NRA um, and not voting for them. That's a clear call to action, mm-hmm. which is which is better than just <clears throat> anger that that dissipates in in the ether of of whatever the, the Internet. Um, this this has, this is anger that can can generate action with a specific specific clear call to change. The, the pessimist in me says that this you already see it turning into a moving target about oh mental health problems. Um, and reporting to, you know, the FBI didn't do its job and all that stuff. And every time I read something like that, I'm like, yeah, uh, yeah tr- that's also true. I mean, literally, like, let's just look at all of the things that might prevent something like this from happening. And let's all agree that we should try them all. All
0: right. Well, we should wrap up. But uh, thank you for coming back on, Molly. I think this was a thank great Thank you for idea. having
1: me. I'm really glad we got to have this, this follow-up mm-hmm. conversation. That was important mm-hmm. to me.
0: The Queen. and has spoken. Pay no attention to that
1: man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? I'm a very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. They think deep thoughts and with no more brains than you have. brain.
0: You're a very bad man.
1: I'm a very good man. Just a very bad wizard.